Welcome to Runners Radio, where we bring you the stories and the teachings of the world's leading high performers, as well as some bloody amazing human beings as well. If you find some value in the show, we would greatly appreciate you taking a few seconds to leave us a five-star review. It really does enable us to help a lot more people. The show is brought to you by Runners.com. That's R-U-N-N-E-Z.com. Runners is your online running coach, no matter your level or aspirations. Just put runners in your ears and off you go. Without further ado, let's get on to the show. G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. A bit of a deep dive in Coach's Corner today, but a true legend of Australian sport. So if you are an overseas listener, just buckle in and have a listen to this. Paul Bruce, the player, he played 356 games for the Swans and Fitzroy from 1982 to 98. He's a seven-time All-Australian, twice as captain if you don't mind, five-time best and fairest. He represented the Big V, Victoria, on 14 occasions in the time-honoured state of origin. He's a Fitzroy Team of the Century member at centre-half back. Long-standing club captain of the Roy Boys, of course. He won the 1986 prestigious Lee Matthews Trophy, which is your peers voting you the MVP. And I tell you what, he was stiff in the brain like that year as well. But it's for his post-playing career that Rusey is arguably best known and continues to produce transformational, inspirational work as a leader, mentor and true culture builder in business and sport. As a coach, he led the Sydney Swans to their famous 72-year drought-breaking premiership in 2005 on the back of the truly special Bloods culture he was pivotally embedding at the Swans. In total, Paul coached 260 AFL games with huge success at both Sydney and Melbourne. He has since immersed himself in the world of leadership culture, high performance through, among other things, his company, Performance by Design. The 2008 Australian Father of the Year and his wife, Tammy, herself, a PhD in meditation and mindfulness, are a formidable team, and they just simply make you and your team better. That's a long intro, and I was just with my hand to Paul Gunn. I promise you I'm winding up soon, but I pretty much cut that short. It's a privilege to sit in front of the great man and pick his brain for the next 40 or so minutes. Welcome, Paul Roos. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, mate, thank you for giving up your time. I know you're inundated now. Roosie is a, a true leader um, and a culture builder, and he has been since the very start, but uh, as all leaders and, and coaches and mentors in general, it has to start somewhere, and, and I love listening to your, you talk about your junior days, mate. Um, I reckon it's really pivotal in what made you. So take us right back to Don Vale and Beverly Hills Junior Footy Club and your family and just how it all came to be and, of course, on, on the Fitzroy. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Don Vale, as you said, which was back in those days you were zoned to a certain footy club. But when you are a kid back then, you were sort of playing all sports. It's, it's probably a little bit different now where it's such a... Most sports are a pretty elite system, but I was playing a lot of tennis on the weekends, playing a lot of basketball. I love basketball. And I was playing footy as well. And then... Um, eventually was invited down to Fitzroy Footy Club. And probably even, you know, in your junior days, you touched on, mate, is you probably don't understand the lessons you're actually learning, whether regardless of whether you go on to play AFL footy or not. You know, the, the notion of teamwork and, um, you know, helping your mates out and getting to training when it's wet and rainy and windy and discipline and all those sorts of things. So then I was really fortunate to go to, to, to Fitzroy. I've, I've said this many, many times. You know, I was exposed to some great people and great leaders. And, and that's probably where my leadership style started, you know, way back in the early 80s at Fitzroy. I didn't really know where I was going to end up, obviously, from a footy point of view and from a coaching point of view. 
But I had so much admiration for Gary Wilson, Bernie Quinlan, Laurie Serafini, Mickey Conlon, yeah, Scotty Clayton, Leon Harris. Um, yeah, the list sort of went on and on and on. They were really, really good people. And I think early days I learned, um, you know, to be a, a good leader, you've got to be a good role model. You've got to do things um, first and foremost, and then people will follow you if you do things the right way. So, yeah, I love my time at Fitzroy. Um, great people. Yeah, but we had, you know, we were working as well, so it's not like it is today. We sort of head off to work in the morning, go to train in the afternoon, and yeah, but had a, a really good experience there. Good, great era for the footy club as far as on field, especially in those early to mid eighties. Um, I, I know what was going on behind the scenes, and I think for the overseas listeners and even to state listeners, um, touch on that. Like you, like you said, you mentioned those names and leaders, and you've mentioned many times about the quality of people they were, um, and this is what a big in your work today is the CEOs and the leaders down just really um, being the role models themselves and not not um, trying to make someone in charge of the, the culture and the leadership, but they actually take take ownership of their, their behaviour. Um, so you had these, you're walking, you've got Bernie Quinn, you've got Robert Walls to David Park, and you've got some seriously good uh, people in the game, Bernie Quinlan, Gary Wilson, Mickey Conlon, these fellas, Serafini, just take the listeners through, I guess, their behaviours on and off the field and why you are probably a bit different to what might have been happening uh, in 11 other Victorian clubs at the time. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, for those you don't know from overseas, we were, we were part-time, so we were a sort of semi-professional league getting paid to do it, but we were coming down to training pre-season in the afternoons. We'd probably train three mornings a week, you know, 6.30 in the morning. We'd train Saturday mornings most weeks leading into the season, and we'd probably train four nights a week. Once the season started, we'd, we'd sort of train a Sunday morning, have a run, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. So what I noticed, a couple of things that really I noticed was that there's no such thing to sort of have an off night at Fitzroy. Look, so many of the players would go down on their nights off and practice there, you know, whether it's goal kicking, do an extra weight session, do an extra running session. So as a young player coming into the footy club, you mentioned the great names, you know, Robert Walls was my first coach, but it wasn't just enough to do what Robert Walls said to do or what Chris Jones, our first fitness guy, my first fitness guy said, was actually the culture was driven by the players. So when I, you know, we trained hard under Walls and we trained hard under Jonesy, but the way the players presented themselves coming back to training, the way they would turn up on the off night, so that was the behaviour that I really saw. And I thought, gee, this footy is pretty hard, but it's actually really hard at Fitzroy because you've got to do more than what probably most clubs do. I also remember, you know, in the days of the, the, the sort of wild footy trips back then, you know, and I was only a young kid, but, you know, we were, we were told many, many times when we go on a footy trip, hey, you know, that's not the way we behave here. And to be perfectly frank with you, I've gone into too much detail, you know, some of the things we were doing in, in contrast to some of the players from the other 11 clubs was very, very tame. But I also remember that. Oh, okay, so I'm not only representing the club on the field, I'm representing the club off the field. So when I'm going away, whether it be on a footy trip or, you know, to, to a, um, a country clinic or to a sportsman's night, I'm actually representing the Fitzroy Footy Club. So, you know, you, you were taught how to act on the field and you were taught how to act off, off the field. I remember, you know, going to Hawaii, which we were really fortunate to do at the start of 1984, I think it was, 83 or 84, it was a pre-season camp. You know, and just the great mentors I had that would sort of look after me make sure I got home all right, check on me the next morning, you know, and we would never, you know, we would, we'd always train really hard during the day and then go out to dinner. And so the ability to, to sort of interact with those guys, Peter Francis, Lee Carlson, guys from other footy clubs that had come from, you know, Neville, Neville Taylor, 
you know, people that aren't really household names now, Chris Smith, um, you know, I could, I could list 30, 40 guys that were just really good role models. So the behaviours, you know, were pretty obvious what you had to do to be successful at that club. And it speaks volumes to what you talk about often now with corporates and businesses when you come into a company or come into a team. Um, like you said, the behaviours, you can go and ask the first the person who's been there two weeks yeah. what the culture stands for, what, what its behaviours of this team or this, this corporation. And um, what you've said then, it speaks volumes. And hence why, considering you had every reason not to be successful at that club at the time with the financial difficulties and, and off-field stuff, but you were just a super team, super team, and you came into it. And the, the, what you've just spoken about then speaks volumes for that. Like, take us through those mid-80 period. Like you were, um, and overseas listeners, he, he is a superstar, in the top two or three players in the country for a long, long time. Um, 86 especially. Take us through that season. And it must have been an enjoyable place to be, uh, winning games and, of course, playing finals, a famous final, elimination final against the Bombers, I think. And then uh, yeah, I think you won the semi the next week. So take us through that period. And, of course... Very, very. That is, is still. Do we say the word robbed? Robbed of a brown loaf? What, what what's your take? Yeah, yeah. It sort of happened probably prior to that. So the lead into '86. I remember my first year was '82. We played in the finals in '83, and we were a little bit unlucky that year. That was the famous Michael Tuck kick from the boundary when Michael Nettlefold, I think, was the only deliberate out of bounds paid for about 110 years. Um, and we were a really good team then. We had a, a fantastic team of the guys we mentioned. We played finals '84. And then 86 was a really interesting year because we, I remember with about seven weeks to go, um, um, Keith Wiegate came on to the, we trained on a Sunday, came to Wesley College and said, look, we, looks like we're going to have to wind up at the end of the year. So it was a, it's a fascinating year, you know, we're going to have to wind up, relocate, um, you know, merge with a Melbourne-based club. And I remember towards the end of 86 meeting with some of the consortiums with the Brisbane Bears at the time. I mean, we didn't know what they were going to become, but some of those consortiums. And we went on to win six of our last seven games, you know, going into that final series. And we really sort of snuck up on the competition and, you know, we had a fantastic finish to the season. Uh, yeah, the Essendon game was amazing. You know, we, we uh, Mickey Conlon, who hadn't touched the footy all day, and I worked, walked with Mickey on Sundays, most Sundays, and a number of the other old Fitzroy boys, I've mentioned their names before, and Mickey hadn't had a touch and... You know, we got the ball in the middle of the ground. Leon Harris kicked it to him and Mickey kicked the winning goal. And, you know, the excitement, uh, the vision, if anyone hasn't seen the vision of that, it's amazing. We then went on the next week and we beat the, the Sydney Swans. Ironically, um, I think Bernie Quinlan kicked, I don't know, five, four goals in the last quarter or five goals in the last quarter, six or seven for the day. And then we just sort of ran out of steam. We played a, a great Hawthorne footy team. Um, you know, in that preliminary final and we were probably just exhausted by then and um, you know, had a great season and yeah, and then leading into the Brownlow was, was actually quite funny because they yeah, you know, they, they typically our last game was against Sydney. Um, I was one vote behind and I was voted best on ground in all the papers and they left the, the Fitzroy Sydney game to the last and all the cameras came across and you know, one vote such and such, two votes such and such, three votes and it wasn't me. And I remember just the cameras just disappeared in about 0.05 of a second and went over to find Dipper and, and Diesel sort of thing. So it was a fleeting moment of, of excitement for everyone in the room, particularly me, and that lasted about, yeah, about a, a second sort of thing. So, But, um, yeah, we had a great season. And, yeah, the early 80s were, were a fantastic time for Fitzroy and Fitzroy supporters and, and really, really good teams in that in that period. Super teams, um, look, super talent, but the systems and the process were there, obviously, Walsey Park and yourself and all the other leaders around. You, you, 
I feel like you came into a side of, of great leaders and it's so good that you've reconnected since you've come back to Melbourne yep. from Sydney and it sounds like you guys catch up often coffees and walks and, and which is what life's all about your mates and your family from your footy days um, that late 80s period again Fitzroy fledgling really uh, but looks still semi semi um, competitive as well um, you were named captain um, and probably was a natural choice how did you find your captaincy did you did you always find you're a natural captain or was the lead the leadership you just kind of pick like as always what most of us do we just pick a bit from uh, all our finest coaches leaders mentors yeah I think picking a lot you know as, as you mentioned the coaches um, learning a lot from Wolsey and, and Parker and learning a lot from previous captains uh, Ronnie Alexander was my first captain I only sort of I think he left at the end of 81, then Gary Wilson took over, and then Matty Rendell took over, and I took over from him. So you are learning along the way. You know, People sort of ask a lot, are you born leadership or you learn? And I think it's just a little bit of both, to be honest. But certainly I learned a lot about you know, how to captain the footy club. And um, you know, probably going through those tough periods, if you mentioned the financial hardships, we still have really good players coming in. You know, we haven't talked about you know, Richard Osborne, Gary Pert, you know, Johnny Blakey, Alistair Lynch, Rossi Lyon. Yeah, Paul Brodlick, Matty Armstrong, Brendan Gus. We still had some good players, particularly from Tassie. We had a really good group of players that came from Tassie, but we probably started to get worn down. And some of the things that I probably didn't enjoy then, but probably helped my leadership, was players ringing me and Bruzy, I haven't got paid. You know, can you help me out? I'm, I bought a house. I'm trying to get a house. I need my money from the club. And so I was probably dealing with things as a captain that you know, most other captains weren't having to deal with. So I remember a lot about that. And at, at the time, it was probably just normal. You know, well, I remember the start of one season, might have been my last season or second last season, a group of players come to me, really worried about whether they're going to get paid. So we had a meeting, um, you know, at my manager's place. And, you know, we went to talk about, we wanted a guarantor from the AFL. And so those were the sort of things. But at the time, you probably... Um, didn't really think too much about them, but I think they did help me as a leader. There's no question about that because we, you know, I was having to do things that most other captains weren't doing. Well, yeah, that's that's not the ideal situation for a leader to be in as a young bloke in 26, 27, but does it not set you up for the next 30, 40 years of, of corporate mentorship and that? Because I can't imagine the uh, Tim Watson, Simon Maddens at the time were having those conversations uh, or Stephen Kernan, so a lot of your contemporaries. That, that's really cool. And it'll be right. It does, those little things make you... Uh, when you look back on it. So this period of your life is, is really important, I reckon. So we're coming up. So for the listeners, again, overseas, we'll keep prefacing this. This is the best, that this is a religion here in Australia, this game. And the man in front of me is, is an icon. So he's coming to the end of the tether at Fitzroy. A lot of your good mates and bloody good footballers are starting to um, leave. So Purdy to Collingwood, Lynch, he goes to um, well, Brisbane, Brisbane yeah. fatigue, and, and then obviously comes yep. back well. But... All these boys start to go. I think Richard Osborne left as well. Um, what was the final nail? And then the, what got you over the line, the Sydney Swans? Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my teammates, good friends were going. I remember when Lynchy left the year before me and probably the hardest thing was having a conversation with him. And and probably, when I say how bad it got, it wasn't necessarily the fans were incredible. Mm. Yeah, we were still competitive, but we dropped off a lot because of the players. But it was probably more the frustration of the club. And I mentioned before, you know, every time your payment was due, you had to ring the footy club and you had to ask them, you know, can you get it? And they, yeah, they were always respectful, obviously. And look, can you wait a week, Ruzi? And so we we're all getting worn down. And Lynchy came to me before he went to Brisbane and said, what do you think? I said, mate, look, 
if I was you, I'd go, look, it's just not the footy club we all remember. The following year, I've told the story a fair bit, the following year, um, you know, I was captain, I won the best and fairest, I got up on stage and I was presented with a medal and they said, look, can you give the medal back? It's a fake medal, it's not really the medal that we've, we've got. Um, and then, you know, I'd made the decision to, to sort of leave, you know, it was a really, really difficult decision and then I got a phone call from someone and, and they are always really well-meaning Fitzroy people and they said, look, Rusey, things are going to be different. So I met with them in a cafe in Mitcham and I said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll give you two chores to do. One is you get my medal, my best and fairest medal. Two, because um, I wanted to test them financially, I said, look, you can, if you can bring my December payment forward, that'll give me an idea we're heading in the right direction. He rang me about a week later. He said, look, sorry, mate, I can't do either. You know, so that's probably where the club had got to. And it was really sad to have to leave. I always wanted to be a one-club player, and that was something all of us really wanted to do. Um, you know, Purdy got sort of sideswiped and got sent off to Collingwood. You know, Johnny Blakey got traded. Lynchy had to make a decision. But we were all, the intent for all of us was to, to stay at the footy club for our whole career, but it just didn't work out that way. And then going to Sydney was quite fascinating as well because Ronnie Joseph was terrific to me and was talking to me and said, look, you know, at 31, we don't want you to come here by yourself. We're talking to Tony Lockett. We'd love the two of you to come. Um, but they were trying to get Tony first and that went down to the wire. And then once that happened with Tony which was pretty exciting for me to be able to play with Tony Lockett. You know, he rang me straight away and said, look, we're going to take your first pick in the March draft. You know, we want you to come. And so that was sort of the turnaround and, and how I eventually arrived at Sydney. The Swans at the time, yeah, like the, like I think Barassi was coaching and you had some, had some good people on the board. Yes, they were like down the bottom of the ladder as well, but the, there was a very different feel. Uh, the list was strong, obviously, yourself and Plugger, two Hall of Famers and legends of the game, and not bad inclusions to Paul Kelly and Darren Creswell. Yep. Mark Bays, a few other boys around that were quite quite handy. Um, and tell the listeners about oh, you, you were just um, your first few months and you were just inquiring about your payment and just making sure that you... Yeah, it was funny because well, a couple of things happened because you're right. Someone's, yeah, people say, oh, why would you go to the Sydney, their second bottom team? I said, well, we're the bottom team. But but the nucleus was there and I, I remember sitting with Ronnie Joseph and Richard Collis and, and Barash and they were telling me about the AFL supporting them so you could sense they were on the verge of a bit of a, a turnaround um and it was yeah my funny because typically back then we sort of get, you get paid um first of march first of july i think first of december sort of thing so i remember first of march coming around and thought tammy here we go again i gotta you know i gotta you know ring up and get my payment so i thought oh yeah right, so i ring up bring the accountant um look you know my payment was due yesterday and she's, they said i oh, just check your bank account i'm like what do you check your bank account and they said well it should be in your bank, and there was something called an automatic, you know, debit, and I didn't never heard of it before. So that was so it sounds silly now, but that's where it sort of got to, yeah, you know, where we were. So look, really lucky you mentioned. I remember watching the Swans the year before I got there, and you know, young Paul Kelly and Andrew Dunkley looked like he was going to be a good player. Basie was already a star. Creza was a star. Yeah, you know, then they had some young players. You're right, mate. Get your phone. Yeah, they did. They did have a lot, and the talent there. So you got. A real good nucleus of young fellas. I think Paul Kelly um, was the Brownlow medalist the year after you got there or the year you got there. I can't remember if you got there in 94, 95, but Kelly's won the Brownlow in 95. And these are all uh, very good footballers. And you've got Paul Ruse and Tony Lockett coming into this equation with uh, Barassi and then all Lockett post that. But So it was a very different uh, feel, to, unfortunately, to the Fitzroy. Like, that you knew there was momentum building, probably off the field just as much, which is... 
which is half the battle. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that, that was the thing. The frustrating at Fitzroy, I guess, was we just get told all the time, oh, there's a new facility getting built and there's some money coming in, and that probably started around 86. So for the next sort of best part of eight years, we heard a lot of that and it never eventuated. As I said, when I went to Sydney and I started hearing from you know, Barras and Richard, and you could sort of sense, because you knew the AFL was going to get behind them, whereas unlike Fitzroy... Yeah, they sort of wanted a team to go to Brisbane, so there was no real support from an AFL or VFL back then. But you could sense that, that they were going to get behind the, the Swans. And you mentioned some of the players. Then we had an influx of young players coming in, Mickey O'Loughlin, you know, Brad Seymour, um, you know, a couple of other really important recruits over the next couple of years, Kevin Dyson, Man, Craig O'Brien, Nixie came yeah. in, Stewie Maxfield arrived either that year or the year after. So we suddenly build... And it turned really quickly. You know, we, we didn't have a super year in 95 um, under Barras. But Barras was really good at teaching us about discipline and just an incredible ambassador. For, for him to put his reputation on the line you know, after the success he'd had and to go to, to, to the footy club was just an incredible tick for the... And it was a huge moment for the Sydney Swans. And then Rodney Ede came in, started in 96. And I signed 95... I don't think I, I thought maybe we could play finals in my third year, which I signed a three-year contract. And we turned out, you know, with all those players we mentioned, young players coming in, we ended up playing a grand final in 96. So it was a really quick turnaround. Big season, 96. Big day, 96. Um, you've described it as the best and worst day of life, which is understandable. Uh, you happen to run into a rampage in Wayne Carey in the North Melbourne Kangaroos in the centenary grand final, if I remember correctly. Tell the listeners, succinct it quickly, I guess, but you... you this is the whole, the holy grail for a footballer. You've done it all, and you, know, you couldn't have done anything more. What was your lead up to that, and, and how are you feeling? Uh, you obviously coming towards the end of, as a footballer. Grand final day, take us through. Yeah, so I played the thirteen years. Fitzroy didn't play in a grand final, so this is my second year. So yeah, fifteen years into my career, and I probably didn't ever think I'd play in a grand final. Yeah, I remember it you know, as, as it was yesterday. You know, we flew down. You go on the parade down here. They have a big parade on the Friday before the grand final. So it's a yeah, it's a Super Bowl. It's the FA Cup or you know whatever you want to call it. It's a, it's obviously a massive massive um, event. I remember going to the to the parade and it was pretty cool to get in, you know, seeing all the Swans fans and the North Melbourne fans and and suddenly being part of it. Uh, the amount of people around the hotel on the Friday night and then getting in the room, you know, getting into your room on the Friday night and then really focusing on the game. Waking up in the morning, getting the bus to the to the ground, and then suddenly realizing you're playing the grand final. And I so I wanted to be really conscious of it because I was always one that would go and watch a grand final. I remember breaking through the banner and doing my lap, warming up, and I was looking up in the grandstand, thinking I'm normally sitting up watching players play. So it was a really cool experience. And then when the the siren goes, the umpire you know, holds the ball up, the siren goes, it's it's bang into it. And you're right. I mean, we played against a really good team, and yeah, you know, I think probably the the best team in that particular year and yeah we were a little bit when I say unlucky there's always moments in a game and it was a moment I think in the second quarter that yeah it was just a a little kick that dropped short from Cal and it just missed plugger slightly and it went straight down the other ground so sort of that two goal swing and um yeah we were pretty exhausted at half time remember going at half time and you know Dunks had had a big week he'd been reported and he, he got off eventually through the through a Supreme Court, I think it was. So, yeah, we'd, we'd given everything up until that stage and the second half sort of fell apart for us. But it was probably a, a lot closer grand final than the final result. 
but yeah, North were just were just too good and had those great players. But it was, yeah, I talk about it as my, my best footy day and my worst footy day, you know, all wrapped up into one day. There was a better day to come, I feel. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the next couple of years intrigued me as well, mate, because you are an elite footballer. And I know I've said that a couple of times. Not that many players that have been at the very top echelon and really are extremely aesthetically pleasing to watch and all these things turn out to be great coaches. Just to look back, and you obviously have been, and you're still doing it as a career. Um, you look at a lot of the great coaches, quote unquote, and they're they're more the toilers, the back pockets, or the the, the run whiffs, or just just good footballers, but not not yep. a superstar like yourself. Ninety eight intrigues me. Um, Rocket was starting to play you a little bit off the bench. You started to take a little bit of notes. Um, you wrote your famous twenty five pillars um, that you just as a, what you see as a good leader to be. I think that would be correct in saying. Um, and it would would have been just for looking through the game for another lens. Maybe a player that isn't first picked, maybe a player that is 18th picked, or week to week he's, he's wondering whether he's going to get a game or going to get a paycheck or, or those kind of things. So take us through 98, because I reckon that's a massive part of your journey. Yeah, obviously when your sort of body's starting to fail you and you've, you've been a pretty good player for a long period of time, there can be a sense of frustration. So back in those times, the interchange wasn't used like it is now. And I, I sort of started a number of games at the back and you sort of sit there for a while. And But it was turned out to be a great period because you're right, I suddenly started to realise that not everyone's getting a game every week and not everyone knows they're, they're, you know, they're picked or captain or whatever. And I started to understand, gee, this, this team's full of really different personalities They've got different anxieties going into games, and and at the end of 1998, I wrote down a list of 25 points that I you know, liked about leaders, didn't like about leaders, and it was really coinciding with a period of, of full-time professional football. So that notion of you know Walsey being a school teacher and Parker being a lecturer and coming down to training at, at sort of four o'clock and and getting things done really quickly was changing. You know, it was a, an era of full-time. So I felt there was a new way of coaching. I didn't realise I was going to be a coach. This is 1998. I wrote it down. Didn't coach till 2002. But I felt like there was a new way of doing it. So there was probably two things that you mentioned. One, I realised that it, you know, if there's a list of 42, they're all different personalities. And they're all going through different things to what I was going through. And two, that list was just to say, if you were going to coach, this is your blueprint. This is your coaching audit. And it was a list that I had on the desk for eight and a half years of coaching Sydney and it was the first sort of um, list I took out or first document I took out when I started coaching the Melbourne Footy Club and it really was an audit held me accountable to the leader that I wanted to be it's pretty powerful and I, I genuinely believe it, it is because you are a good person and good leaders have to be good people um, you could have gone the other way like you could you're a superstar at the game you could have easily said oh stuff is like um, why am I getting played on the bench and all these kind of things but you almost you turned it into a massive positive that's almost set the tone for the rest of your life as a leader and mentor oh, I love it um, and you often talk about good leaders have to be good people first and relationships always come first. Obviously, structure, system, process, we'll get into in a minute, but the leadership, you got to, you just got to be a good person, you've got to care about those 44 blokes or 44 um, players and on the list or 300, 400, yeah. 5,000 staff, or how many staff you've got in your, in your corporation these days that Rusey talks to. Um, so, pulled up stumps in 98. Uh, 99 was pretty powerful because your beautiful wife, Tammy, is American, so she sacrificed a lot the last couple of decades and you travelled around, and I love this, so tell her this is about the sporting precincts you went to, the coaches you dealt with. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I had a pretty good year. I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek say this was a pretty tough year. At 99, uh, we went over to America, and I was doing a bit of work for Channel 7 at the time, and also Triple M, and 
uh, Channel 7 had a bureau out of Los Angeles, which was pretty cool. And they said to me, look, if you've, if you've got some stories you want to do, um, you know, just let us know and we'll send a cameraman. So um, that was like a red rag to a ball, to be honest. So, I, yeah, look, I went to the Major League Baseball All-Star game. Dave Nilsson was the Australian that had played there. Went and watched Andrew Gaze play for the San Antonio Spurs. Went to the Davis Cup. Went to Wimbledon, French Open. Went to the Super Bowl. Um, and through that, I also, on my, on my own accord, um, went to the Chicago Bulls, Chicago Bears, San Diego Chargers, San, um, San Francisco 49ers. So it was an incredible year of learning and, and seeing. I got the, one of my best mates, Brett Stevens, was coaching Pete Sampras. I got to hang out with Pete Sampras um, in, in, in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, so it was a really, really good year from a learning point of view, seeing these great athletes, seeing these great organisations, seeing these great events, and yeah, it turned out again to be an extremely pivotal year in, in my coaching career as well. Some great IP building, and just all that kind of stuff you take from different people. Like we said, when you're talking from the best, this is the professional era that uh, Aussie Rules was coming into yeah. at a real rate of knots by that stage, so it was good to go that like, America does it professionally the best possibly in the world still, arguably. You've taken a few of those and the greats like the Chicago Bears, Bulls and those kind of more. Uh, you come back to Australia uh, and you, is, you, is the die set? Do you, you know that you're going to be coaching in some? So do you go straight back to Rocket as assistant or how does that how does that come about in that early millennium phase? Yeah, well, so come back at the 2000 Olympics, which is good, come back at the end of 1999. As I said, I was doing some work for Channel 7. So they had a, a pay TV network called C7 and they asked me to host the Olympics. I got the midnight to 6am shift, so I still stuck to the three people that watched um, me on television. But it turned out, again, to be an amazing experience. What I thought was going to be a disaster. So I'd go and work at 12, to arrive at sort of 10.30, and Roy and HG had that show, and they had all these Olympians coming in before I was on air. So I got to you know see some of these great Olympians, talk to Ray and Roy and HG every night, um, and then I'd go home, get home at 6.30, sleep for five or six hours and I had a pass to go to all the events, which was cool. But I also worked a bit of part-time, did a bit of part-time work with the Swans as a sort of helping with the defence. And at the end of 2000, I started full-time. That's when um, the CEO, um, I think uh, Cole Seary came to me and asked me, look, I was, was, was I interested in, in being part of the, the team full-time? So I had to make a decision sort of then, but media, you know, was going okay. I was doing some work with Plugger and I were doing the games at Channel 7. I was working with Bruce McEvaney, which was an amazing experience as well. But then I sort of had a bit of an itch. I thought, no, nah, look, I'll get into it and just see whether it's something I want to do. You know, at that stage, I didn't really know whether I wanted to be a senior coach. So, yeah, I started 2001. It was full-time at the footy club, really enjoyed it. And then obviously halfway through 2002, you know, was when Rocket stood down. So it probably wasn't until then. Um, when the club came to me and said, look, we want you to be the coach, was probably the first time, because I always thought, well, I've had, I'll have a fair bit of time to think about it, and I'll go through the process of being an assistant coach, and at some point I'll make the decision. So it did come a bit quicker than I thought. Certainly did, well, some people have 10-year apprenticeships as, as assistants and line coaches the like, but um, remember it vividly, mate, um, mid-02, obviously you got the job, Rocket, it might have been a couple of issues, and you've spoken about him before, but he's a great, he was a great coach, but yeah. there's a couple of issues with... Um, just not, in, and you've got this in your pills, just not enjoying the process, enjoying the wins. Um, an issue with the song one time, you yep. spoke about it. Yep. Um, but that's just little things that like can lose players at times. And so you come in, there was a big push for Wallace, Terry Wallace, that you, you won over every player, member, supporter, casual supporter in the land. Um, 
could you feel that momentum building as you were going along or you were just too focused on process systems, process systems? Yeah, not really. Yeah, just sort of, I mean, when you're coming in after, I mean, Rocket, I always had this sort of philosophy and I don't know why I had it, but I always thought as a player, if you haven't won a premiership, you've probably got about a six, seven year window. That, that was probably my philosophy. And and Rocket was a fantastic coach, like really groundbreaking in a lot of ways, but probably started to get really frustrated because we didn't win in 96. We got to the finals many, many times and couldn't win. So you sort of started to get frustrated. So it was probably just like a relationship that had to break and he recognised it, stood away. So probably the next 10 weeks was just letting the players enjoy themselves a bit more. And I always say this, it's probably the easiest 10 weeks of your, your coaching career because you really can't change much. Not that I really wanted to. The players are just ready for a different voice for, for whatever reason, no one's fault really. So you get into the seat, the players instead of being, what was their record at that stage, I think four and eight, a zero zero. They don't actually think of themselves as four, four and eight. They think of themselves as, oh, we've got 10 games to go, we're, we're zero zero. So it's actually a pretty good um, time to come in. So we just tried to tweak a few things, tried to enjoy it. So I was really more focused on the players in that 10 weeks. The other stuff really snuck up on us. Um, Cal, Paul Kelly and Andrew Dunkley played their last game, the last game of the year, round 10. I walked down on the, you know, the ground to congratulate them. And then the players sort of, as they were congratulating Dunks, and Cal, they sort of turned and gave me a big hug. And that was probably the start of when everyone recognised that this Wallace push was going to be overthrown in a sense. And the players were really supportive of me as a coach. But it probably wasn't until up, in that time, I really thought too much about it, to be perfectly frank. So, I uh, know most of the media has you guys finishing bottom in 03, um, and the rest just goes from there. Like, you really do have a real sharp rise up the ladder. Um, on the back of a lot of these leaders, on-field leaders, and I know Stewie Maxfield uh, was massive, and, and you speak so highly of them. Um, idols of, of mine, other like Brett Kirk and those kind of guys. So, tell us about that on-field um leadership group you had and you've, it's, it's exactly the same in business and you talk about this often so talk, talk about those guys cause yeah it was sort of a, a bit of a leap of faith you know based on my 25 points I could never work out why the players weren't more involved in the system you know so we we created a, a set of clear behaviours we then voted on the leadership group which is really everyone does that now we were the first ones to do it back in 2003 into 2002 um, and then through the voting system yeah, we came up with, I think at the time, like seven or eight leaders that were clearly ahead. And out of that group, we picked Stewie Maxfield captain. Stewie was just an incredible role model leader, you know. I've got so much time and respect for Stewie and probably the most important figure in the Swans' 30 year, last 30 to 40 years because he said, OK, if this is the system that Ruzi set up, this is the system we've agreed to, I'll implement the system. And he challenged and rewarded his teammates over and over and over and over again. And really got us to where we got to in 2005. Unfortunately, he couldn't play in that grand final. And that's really the only sad memory from the 05 grand final was the fact that Stewie hurt his knee, had to stand aside as captain going to 2005 and couldn't play. Um, but his ability to, to role model our behaviours, say to the players, get on board, shape that leadership group. We've had some really good leaders in it. And you can still see the legacy of Stewie Maxfield now, you know, with the way this young team of Sydney's playing, you know, four and one start, um, you know, young players coming through their academy. Um, it's just been amazing. So that's how impactful Stewie was. And, yeah, playing the grand final in 2005 was a result 
of the things we implemented at the start of 2003 and our leadership holding everyone accountable to that and the coaches and leaders working really closely together, making sure we, we were able to be really clear on what we wanted the players to do, the standards, both the technical standards of the game and the behaviours around the footy club. Yeah, and you talk about that, that's spot on. You talk about that in business and, and performance by design. does such a great job in, in exactly what you just spoke about there, right? Holding each other to account, but honest, uh, what do you call them, truth talks or true talk? Real, t- real, real talk, talks, yeah. Um, and we talk about your your um, dislike, and I totally understand, for the 360-degree anonymous feedback compared to constructive face-to-face. And you guys were the, one of the first to bring it in. And it just creates such a, a feeling of trust and and everyone is there together. On the one yeah, point. 100%. I, I think that was a big thing too. Because traditionally, again, sort of the coach was seen as here and the players were here. There's a little bit of a, a gap. It started to bridge again because of the fact we were full-time, yeah, mid-90s. But we wanted to collectively build this. It, it had to be a club-wide thing, a footy department thing, not just the players doing this and the coaches doing this and players getting away with stuff and the coaches not being told. So that was a real part of it. You know, everyone really in it together. Everyone... And then once we created this really clear set of guidelines and really clear set of the way we wanted to behave, the coaches did an amazing job of articulating a game plan. We created a really safe space, you know, and Brene Brown talks a lot about that, creating a safe space for everyone to have a voice. You know, we, we created a safe space, everyone had a voice. So when we were giving the feedback, you know, it wasn't an anonymous feedback, it was face-to-face feedback, but based on a set of behaviours. The thing I get confused about when people talk about this anonymous 360 feedback what am I giving the feedback on? If we're not really clear on what our values and behaviours are and what our KPIs are, then is it, I don't like your shirt, I don't like your haircut, I don't like your pair of shoes, you know, I don't like the time you came into work today. You know, so that's where it becomes confusing. If we set up a really good culture, then from the moment you touched on it before, that new person walks in and goes, gee, everyone's on time at the meeting today. Wow, okay, I'll better be on time tomorrow. And then if you're not on time, we can naturally... Um, you know, just so you're clear, we, you know, we always get the meetings five minutes, oh, yeah, no problem. So, yeah, that's the best part of feedback, you know, is giving it honestly, giving it face-to-face and, and positive feedback because I think, I think a lot of times people think feedback is negative and, and a lot of leaders think, well, I've got to pick out the negative. No, 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 we talk about four-to-one positive to negative ratio, you know, well done, you know, well done on that. Thanks for helping me yesterday on that proposal. You know, fantastic for you calling that client back when I was sick the other day. Four to one positive to negative feedback, you know, in meetings. Because people are going to gravitate to what I value. You know, if I'm showing, you know, if I'm showing the Sydney Ponds players, you know, Mickey O'Loughlin kicking the ball from the boundary line when we know he shouldn't be, and I'm going, oh, well done, Mick. And I miss Eamon Buchanan's tackle in the 2005 grand final. People are going to start to gravitate to what Mick does. You know, not... And what we want to do is for Mick to kick the ball to the top of the square, even though he's super talented... But we want to reward Eamon Buchanan because that tackle becomes really important. You know, so it's any time a leader speaks, everyone is listening. Everyone is watching. What are you rewarding? What are you challenging? All the time. Body language, verbal cues, all those sorts of things. So we did create a really safe environment, but a high level of accountability, high little level of review, get better, review, get better, you know, which is really important. The review is so important as well. And and you talked about the the youngster coming in or the, or the new person on the job, um, new employee on the job. Like that is, they'll look at the leader every time and say, "What is?" And you said to me, "It's often like, um, well, what, what's getting rewarded, what's getting complimented, and what's not constructively, of course." Um, and yeah, Fruzzi's 
that missed this and this in the last week and gets mentioned. And like you said, you're always there. Four to one, Flossie is great. And you guys do it really well um, with the company. But that, that's exactly right. But too many people get it wrong and then get it backwards, especially in sporting clubs still. Um, and the last thing I want to touch on before the A5 flag was um, system-based teams and talent-based teams. And I love this. And for any coach of any athlete and any CEO out there, listen to this. This is brilliant. Yeah, I talk about a lot. I talk about you, know, you can have a talent-based system or you can have a behavioural-based system. Now, a talent-based system can still win, and we've seen teams win premierships and um, you know, whatever, FA Cups, Super Bowls, etc., etc. Or you can be a system-based team. You know, and a system-based team says, well, these are the behaviours, this is what we're going to do continually, and you're not relying on talent. You know, so a talent-based team will just go up and down the ladder based on how good they are. A system-based team will be able to stay at a certain level, even if they're best players. And we're seeing it with Richmond over the last four years, a great example. I remember, I think it was a game, was it two years ago when they played um, Port? Um, they, Jack Rewall was out, they had Tread Conchin out, they had um, Dustin Martin out, and might have been Grimes out. So the four best players, and they went over and beat Port. You know, everyone was saying they weren't going to win the Premiership that year, they had too many injuries. A system-based team, because what you're, allowed, what you're able to do then is get the person that comes in and say, this is your role. You're not quite as talented, but the role is the same. And all we're asking is you play that role within our system and you'll have everyone else in the system understanding exactly what their role is, all right? And if we do it really well for 120 minutes, we can, we can still win. A behavioural-based team really says, well, you can do what you like, you know, from, from you know, Monday to, to Friday. Yeah, we'll train pretty hard and, and they still train hard or companies still work reasonably well. Um, but the salesperson, oh, look, he's out for lunch, don't worry, I don't know where he is. Um, why is such and such coming at 10 o'clock on Monday when the meeting's at 9? Oh, don't worry about that. Mm. You know, so, so we're relying on the talent, yeah. all right? And what I always say, become a system-based organisation, not a talent-based organisation. Listen to Ruzi there, yeah, the, the system-based organisation and behaviour-based, like literally built on a concrete footing. Yep. And the other mob, the talent base, built on a house of cards, yep. quite simply. Like, and it's not, like, you can, you can fluke it quite well, but it's not going to augur well for the next decade. But and look, I think, and it's been articulated now, you know, the West Coast Eagles of, of 05 and 06, you know, there's been a number of books written by players and number. So they were a talent-based team, you know, and and I think what they were able to do is, is win um, a, a premiership in 06. But with that talent... If they had been a system-based footy club, a couple of them probably wouldn't be there, um, clearly, based on their behaviours, but that's up for, for other people to decide. But I suspect they would have won more than, you know, than one premiership. You know, then, they, then they learn, you know, to, the, to their credit, and, and definitely stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and over again. You know, then they, Darren Glass became captain. You know, not, not the best player, but a really good role model. They changed a lot of their systems. Adam Simpson comes in. And now, whilst they've got talent, they've very much become a... So it's a great example of, you know, where footy's got to as well. You know, going back to, you know, we were probably pioneers, 03, 04, 05, with a, a, a behavioural-based system team. Most teams were still pretty much talent-based footy teams. I think everyone was, except you. And they're filtered down to VFL local level, and we, we watch people like yourself, Maxfield, Brett Kerr, Jude Bolton, Craig Bolton. We love these guys as, as local footballers and coaches uh, just because it was what we wanted to be like. Um, and then Geelong did it after a real yep. bad 06 and they, yep. built, they built on that with the Tom Harleys and the Wings and those boys. Um, so it's really powerful. Um, 
take us through the 05 grand final day, mate, real quickly. I know it was real special. We, we'll get to your the family stuff and the life balance later. Um, and then we'll go with um, the 05 grand final. The boys are on the ground, the family. Like just such, uh, this is overseas, 72 years this proud club. A really loved club. Um, 72 years without a premiership and the great man with us. Yeah, obviously it was a huge build-up, um, you know, 72 years. And as it got closer, we started, you know, 03, we got, in, like, 96 it started, so it was obviously not 72 years, but, but it sort of started. We were the team that hadn't won one for the longest. So then as the build-up to the week and, you know, we, we beat St Kilda in the preliminary final and you were in the grand final and then the, the noise started, they're back in the grand final, first time since 96, it's 72 years now. Um, but again, in, in those moments, it's, it's about process, it's about making sure the players... Um, you know, train hard, making sure preparation for West Coast Eagles was, was really good. They were a super team, as we talked about then. So we had to get our process in place, then we jumped on the plane to come down to Melbourne. And then the players had to enjoy, as I said, enjoy the parade, enjoy um, you know, that day with family. But I remember going to the meeting on the Friday night before the game, and, and then it became game time. And you know, that was when we really had to switch on to the next day. We'd done our preparation, we trained really well. And being an interstate club was an advantage, because you could sort of do your preparation and get it done in a, in a non-football state in, in Sydney. So we were able to do that. Got Friday out the way. Friday night's meeting was right out, guys, till tomorrow. And really the message I gave to the players was, you know, we can win tomorrow as long as we, we do what we do longer than they do. We, I knew it was going to be a really tough game. I knew they had a lot of talent. So we just had to reinforce to the players in that moment. It was not about... Um, player X doing something they hadn't done during the year, you know, because that's your greatest fear, that suddenly they go outside of the structure, outside the team plan, outside their role, and then the, everything falls apart. So we have to reassure every player, just play your role, but do it for longer. Um, you know, crowd was amazing, ground, ground, you know, game was incredible, three-quarter time, you know, it was just this amazing battle. And then I spoke to him at three-quarter time. Again, people say, oh, what did you say three-quarter time? And as boring as it is, it's, guys, we just got to keep doing it for longer. It's process, process, process. And the game just panned out the way it did. And, you know, they got, I think they got in front and we kicked a couple of goals to get back in front. And then the siren rang. We just happened to be in front at the time. And Leo had taken the mark. I didn't see the mark. Someone, yeah, so what, what someone, I was looking, well, the ball got kicked out. Um, Dean Cox marked, superstar, great, great person, great player. Kicked it back in. I turned around, looked down the other end and thought, well, you know, there's not much time to go. I can't do anything. This is about the team. This is about the culture. This is about the leaders standing up. Hopefully it happens. It happened a number of weeks ago against Geelong when Nick Davis kicked the, the winning goal with about five seconds to go. And then someone in the box yelled out Leo Barry's mark that we didn't actually hear the siren either. And then Peter Jonas, I think, yelled out, that was the siren. And oh, it was just amazing. The players heard it, mate. They yeah, they heard the players heard it, which was great. Yeah, it was amazing then. I wanted to really be conscious of being in the in the moment. You know, had win or lose. You know, humble in both victory and defeat. Um, and because I'd already probably prepared both, I, I was able to. We we had a really good moment in the box after the game. I remember walking down because the the the, um, the coach's box was on the other side of the ground of what it is now. And we walked through the crowds. So I remember walking through the crowd, seeing all the Swans fans and the smiles and the hugs and the kisses and. Walking on the field, seeing all the ex-administrators, current administrators, ex-players, current players, family, friends. And it probably hit me then how important the moment was to literally hundreds of thousands of people. And the best few words, I know you were really powerful about being mindful of it, taking it all in. Um, and the best, the best, I still think from memory, one of the best 
um, premiership uh, phrases of all time. Here it is. And if you're overseas, just Google it because it'll spend shivers up your spine. The boys are out on the ground, Dylan and Tyler are out on the ground, and just all that powerful stuff. And we'll talk later about um, your family and your um, your life balance, which I love um, the way you include that. And I think CEOs and um, leaders in general will do well to listen to uh, part two on Ruzi, just talk about his family, his life balance, and the way he can just quite unquote fit everything in that we all sometimes struggle with and, and not calling it um, a work-life balance. He really, um, to test the word, I guess, it's, it's not it's not where it is at all. So we'll get to that in part two. Um, Ruzi, you've been very generous with your time. I know you've got to duck off, but now make sure you tune in for the next part of Ruzi's life, which does involve a lot of media and coming back into footy with uh, the Melbourne Demons. Um, doing a bit of Barassi and putting the reputation on the line, but he knew he had bigger fish to fry still. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot.